Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A Bureau of Justice statistics report from January to June of 2020 found that racial disparities in jail incarceration widened during the pandemic. Though there was a decrease in jail populations during that period, it did nothing to reduce the racial disparities in jails. Though the total jail population dropped by 25% between June 2019 and June 2020, racial disparities increased during that period. In June 2019, African Americans were incarcerated in jails at about 3.3 times the rate of whites, and a year later, the racial gap had increased so that black people were jailed at 3.5 times the rate of whites. The decrease in incarceration of white people outpaced the decreases among Black, Latino, Asian, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and multiracial people. For instance, the number of whites in jails decreased by about 28%, whereas the number of Blacks in jails decreased by only 22%. As the Prison Policy Initiative observed, quote, these findings reflect the danger of not centering racial justice in decarceration. It is not enough to focus only on reducing incarceration. Decarceration efforts must also address long-standing racial disparities and should never make the criminal justice system less equitable. In 2018, Virginia Department of Corrections was offered a contract with a surveillance company by the name of Smart Communications. VADOC was trying to control their mail system and stop the sending of color photos. Smart Communication offered to do much more than monitor photo quality. They would create a database of everything each prisoner said and received and the name of the sender. A program designed to track not those on the inside, but family, friends, and supporters on the outside. The company said in a proposal to VADOC that they would have access to, quote, the postal mail sender's email address, physical address, IP address, cell phone number, GPS tracking location, and the devices used when accessing the system. Those wishing to send mail would have to pay 50 cents a message or a dollar a photo. This system, known as MailGuard, works by mail being sent to a separate processing facility owned by Smart Communications. There, mail is opened, scanned, and uploaded as a PDF to prisoners to read from a tablet. The company keeps all digital copies for seven years yet the physical mail is destroyed after 30 days. Incarcerated people never get to hold their letters. Smart Communications markets this product as a tool for cracking down on gang members, saying, quote, now postal mail has a digital fingerprint with new intelligence. 
A general counsel with the company contacted Vice Media, who shared information on this contract, demanding, quote, Vice Media, Motherboard, and any other affiliated companies or entities immediately cease and desist all efforts to further disseminate or distribute any information obtained in that confidential proposal. Ultimately, VADOC declined the proposal and went with photocopying and shredding all mail themselves before delivering copies to inmates. Although, Pennsylvania's DOC did sign a contract with Smart Communications. The implementation of the mail guard system was rocky to say the least. Mail was delayed, delivered to the wrong person, scanned pictures were cut off, and some mail was rejected for no reason. The promised kiosks and tablets for viewing the PDF never existed, and DOC ended up just printing out all mail on copy paper. Quinn Cousins, staff attorney at the Pittsburgh Abolitionist Law Center, said, quote, smart communications total surveillance of every aspect of communications with incarcerated people is a chilling convergence of the expansion and privatization of the surveillance state on the one hand and a growing private industry that profits from holding human beings in cages on the other. On April 11th, in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, police murdered Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man. Police conducted a traffic stop and then attempted to arrest Wright due to an outstanding warrant. We've previously discussed the role of the broader carceral net that traps poor people in a cycle of court costs, warrants, and secondary arrests, particularly based on Jackie Wang's work. This is a form of economic exploitation piled on top of racist police violence. When Wright attempted to flee, Officer Kim Potter shot him. In the aftermath of the murder, Brooklyn Center residents rose up for five nights and counting, at points attacking or protesting the police headquarters as well as sacking dozens of economic targets. Brooklyn Center is a working-class suburb of Minneapolis, and Dante Wright's life overlapped with that of George Floyd, who, as we know, was murdered by police last year. Courtney Ross, Floyd's former girlfriend, taught Dante Wright in high school. A new law in Virginia makes records of closed criminal investigations accessible to the public for the first time. According to the Innocence Project, the move is a big step toward greater police transparency. Criminal investigative files holding information about cases and how they were investigated have commonly been unavailable to the public. That was because law enforcement had the sole discretion over whether to release a file to the public or to an attorney. Because those files were not accessible to innocence organizations, it has been hard for attorneys to access their old clients' case files and the case files of officers known to have contributed to other wrongful convictions. Virginia's new law will allow individuals and innocence organizations to access records of inactive investigations to help expose wrongful convictions and possibly identify actual perpetrators through the Freedom of Information request process. This week, we share the first part of a conversation between Garrett Felber and Nicole Siegel. Felber has been on the show before, discussing the Nation of Islam and its relationship to the origins of the modern prisoners movement. His recently released book, Those Who Know Don't Say, The Nation of Islam, The Black Freedom Movement, and the Carceral State, is an important contribution to this history. 
In this episode, Nicole and Garrett talk about the dialectics of discipline, a term that Felber coined in order to describe the relationship between disciplined collective black protest and escalating punitive state discipline. Here they are. I am interviewing today Garrett Felber, author of Those Who Know Don't Say, and the subject of some recent controversy over his firing from the history department at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi. I'm thrilled to have Garrett back on KiteLine. Garrett, welcome to KiteLine. Thank you, Nicole. It's good to be here with you. So let me just first introduce Garrett and remind listeners of the previous interviews that Garrett did for KiteLine. Garrett, you are currently a fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard, right? This year, 2020, 2021. Correct. And back in 2017, 2018, you and I were both in Cambridge for fellowships at the Charles Warren Center for American History. Back in that year, you were working on Those Who Know, Don't Say, and I interviewed you for KiteLine, and those episodes, for anyone who wants to go back and listen to them, aired on February 9th and February 16th, 2018. That was just over halfway through our year there. You were heavy into the book writing, and we had a very dense and, I think, really fantastic conversation. You had all kinds of really interesting things to relate about uh, the content of the book, which focuses on the Nation of Islam and its role in civil rights and anti-carceral state organizing. Um, is, that a, is that a fair summary of those who know? What, what, what's your elevator pitch for when you have to tell people what those who know is about in just a, a few sentences? Well, I think that was great and probably better than my elevator pitch. Yeah, I typically, it's, it's really about, it's not an organizational history of the Nation of Islam. It's about sort of the constellations of people who were in the nation or moved through it or interacted with it, especially in the mid-century, mid-20th century, Black freedom struggle, and in particular about the ways that they organized against policing and prisons. In those episodes, you talk about the phrase, which is the title of your book, Those Who Know Don't Say and Those Who Say Don't Know, which was this wonderfully enigmatic response that the Nation of Islam would give to people who asked about their politics, those who know don't say. And you say, you said in that episode that it performed a politics it didn't name. That was a really wonderful way to understand really what the Nation of Islam was actually doing. They seemed to, to many, especially to people in the more integrationist civil rights movement represented most visibly by the NAACP, to be apolitical, to refuse to be involved in politics because they opposed integration and, and some of the other things that the NAACP and other branches of the civil rights movement were working towards. But in fact, what you show throughout the book and what you and I talked about back in February of 2018 were all the intense ways in which the Nation of Islam is really was deeply political in all the ways that matter. So Garrett, what do you think your book, Those Who Know, is most interested in revising and correcting? What mistaken notion about the Nation of Islam do you think the book most energetically refutes? So it sounds really basic to say. I think the book is refuting the idea that, as you said, that the Nation of Islam is apolitical or somehow was not a part of the civil rights struggle. And I use a part somewhat reluctantly because I think to situate them within the civil rights movement is complicated. But 
for me, it's important to understand, you know, the contentious nature of freedom struggles, that it's not all people of one accord moving in one direction. It's a, a messy confluence of people and ideas struggling for some of the same things and against some different ideas. And so I thought it was really important to say, look, for an organization that's critiquing what we see as sort of the dominant civil rights movement, that means it's still a part of the larger Black freedom struggle, and we need to include it in part because of those critiques. I also was really interested in situating the ideas of the nation that ran counter to the sort of mainstream civil rights movement in context of local grassroots organizing. So for example, you know, Malcolm's famous critique of the March on Washington that he gives in the message to the grassroots speech, that that wasn't just Malcolm sort of identifying the March on Washington's problems and acquiescence to certain liberalisms, but that he had in fact, and others in the nation had organized with people like A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin and Arnold Hedgeman in this brief coalition, the Emergency Committee in New York, specifically around anti-police brutality work. I sort of wanted for readers to understand that those critiques were coming out of real conflicts in local organizing. And these are not just kind of semantic differences or like casting stones from the sidelines, but rather people organizing together brief coalitions and how they diverge based on real ideological differences or strategic differences. And it wasn't that people had these very kind of clean ideological positions that constantly kept them apart. They came together, they formed their sense of each other in coalitions and in struggle, and they had conflict within those fine-grained interactions and that that process was ongoing. Yeah, exactly. And I just think the nation... I, I, what I was interested in, and I think just I'm invested in the question uh-huh. of things that don't necessarily fit neatly, because I think that's the space usually of the most generative organizing. So the nation of Islam doesn't fit easily into our narratives of the mid-century Black freedom struggle. Right. And for that reason, I think it's a really productive space to think about, well, what sort of politics were they engaged in? How were they sort of working with and against different people, organizations, and movements. That's what I was really interested in is thinking about how we sort of just took for granted, I think, that the Nation of Islam had a presence in prisons, but people weren't necessarily asking why and how that came to be. And and they actually played this incredibly pivotal role in the rise of the prisoners' rights movement that I think had been sort of stated but not examined. So the significance of Cooper v. Pate, which is this Supreme Court case that comes out of Illinois, in which Toussaint Lozier, another of our colleagues and comrades, writes about. It was this pivotal prisoner's rights case that some scholars have sort of analogized to Brown v. Board in the civil rights movement, which is that it, for the first time, sort of definitively states that incarcerated people have constitutional rights. That ruling came out of at least five years of other similar cases, many of them in New York State that I talk about where incarcerated Muslims were calling for particular religious rights, but sort of in the process, calling into question this almost century-long period known as the hands-off era, where the courts essentially said, we don't have any jurisdiction over the rights of prisoners because that's something that the wardens and the state commissioners determine. So through the process of trying these cases in different ways and trying to raise questions that went beyond religious rights into things like solitary confinement, good time, and and just questions of discipline, they really brought about the first constitutional rights for incarcerated people because the courts finally said, look, we actually do have to weigh in on the rights of prisoners and sort of end this hands-off period where incarcerated people are simply considered slaves of the state in the language of Ruffin v. Commonwealth. You referred to Toussaint Lozier, who was also a fellow with us at the Warren Center. And I think you're talking about his article in Souls, right? It's called For Strictly Religious Reasons. I just looked it up. 
<laughs> Hooper v. Pate and the origins of the prisoners' rights movement. So do you recommend that for folks who'd like to hear more about that particular case? Yeah, exactly. That article, and then I believe it's going to be a significant portion of the book that he's working wow. on, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, it's clear that the story that you're telling really reframes the history of prisoner organizing, of the politics of incarceration. But how, how does the book reframe civil rights history? So I'll just give an anecdote from the book that I use to kind of raise that question. So there's this case of organizing that sort of happens. And, and this is through this like dialectical back and forth that I talk about between prisoner resistance and prison discipline. It gets to the point where essentially at Attica in the early 1960s, that Muslim prisoners are being held in solitary confinement and being punished for all sorts of things, ranging from possession of religious materials to, you know, giving lessons in the yard to receiving the Black press, uh, Amsterdam News, Pittsburgh Courier, places where Elijah Muhammad's editorials were being published. And one of those incarcerated organizers, Martin Sostrup, sort of decides, well, what we should do is we should take over solitary confinement. And what he means by taking over solitary is essentially purposefully committing these infractions to fill solitary. Mm -hmm. And the parallel that I draw in the book is that this is happening almost contemporaneously with the jail no bail strategy of civil rights organizers in the South. Yeah. And the point I make in the book is not to say that one led to the other, but just to think about, well, what, what are the sort of, not myths, but the dominant narratives that we get about the civil rights struggle. And when we think about jail no bail in the early 60s in a place like Albany, Georgia, why is it that that's sort of seen as central to that narrative. And on the other hand, we have the same strategy, you know, filling jails, which solitary is the jail within the jail, right? And so we have the same strategy. It's thinking about the mechanisms of power in similar ways. Yeah. And it's happening at Attica, which generally shows up in histories of the Black freedom struggle a decade later with the uprising. I think it forces us to reckon with, in many of the ways that sort of I think Theo Harris's work really does to say, look, this struggle's happening outside the South. This struggle's happening in places that are seen to be, you know, liberal, whatever that means. And what I really wanted to say is it's happening with incarcerated people leading that organizing. So what is the place of imprisoned organizers within the civil rights struggle? And I think the dominant narrative tended to be that civil rights organizers outside were incarcerated through their activism. And that sort of made them aware of the conditions of imprisonment. Like if we think of the narrative about the freedom writers, that they were imprisoned and then they sort of came to see prisons and their role in suppressing movements. And I want to push back against that with the book and say, look, for people who were incarcerated, they, they already understood the role of the prisons and the prison was a central site of struggle within what we typically see as the civil rights movement. You're changing the sense of who we need to count as critical actors in the civil rights movement from this kind of college educated youth to people in prison. You're not just moving the nation of Islam into a more central place in the history of prison organizing and in the history of the civil rights movement, but you're moving the place of people in prison into the center of that history. Can you talk please about this marvelous phrase that you use, the dialectics of discipline? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. So originally it was sort of just came out of me trying to work through what I think in some ways was kind of a chicken or the egg, or that's how I was seeing it, is I was just reading through the activism of incarcerated Muslims in New York state prisons. And I would read about, you know, the prison disciplining people through the use of solitary confinement. And then I would think about how prisoners sort of uh, responded by taking over solitary confinement. 
and then how the prison would respond to that. And I just sort of kept working backward and trying to figure out this origin point, I think. Like another example of this was at Attica, there was a rule developed that said you could not have legal materials that were not your own in your cell, which is something that still exists to this day as a disciplinary measure. And the reason that that was developed was because people like Martin Soster, who I mentioned earlier, who were jailhouse lawyers who had trained themselves in law, were preparing suits against wardens and state commissioners on behalf of other incarcerated comrades. So they would prepare the writ and then someone would just sign their name. So basically, I just kept working through, you know, which came first and how the prison responds with discipline and incarcerated people are sort of responding with resistance. And of course, I was thinking of it far too linearly. It was more of a dialectic. So it was, you know, a back and forth of sort of almost like a chess match, which is what all organizing is. It's this chess match between power. And at the same time, it's super busy and messy and the the moves are not nearly as precise as as that metaphor might suggest. Yeah. And it's experimental. Like, I think that's, that's something I always emphasize with organizing is there's not, it's not about finding a blueprint. It's about learning to ask better questions about analyzing our own historical conditions through history. And that through asking those better questions, we can better maneuver, but it's not exactly, yeah, the chess metaphor suggests that there's a set of moves that you can make. Right. Um, and I think with organizing, it's endless and it has to be endlessly creative. So what I was trying to capture was that that dialectic on one hand, and then using the word discipline, I just, I really wanted to emphasize the ways that discipline works differently so that there's discipline in terms of state coercion, which I think is obviously what we typically think of with discipline in the prison context. And then there's sort of collective discipline. So the idea that you are to use the example of taking over solitary confinement, I mean, it takes discipline to purposefully go into solitary confinement for months at a time as an organizing strategy. So there's this collective discipline that's actually used to counter state coercion. And then the third use of the term discipline that I sort of came to understand was really central was disciplinary knowledge and the way that this whole set of actors, some state, some academic, some journalistic, are all creating knowledge about the nation of Islam. That's right. You, you call that a feedback loop, right? Yeah. They're creating their own knowledge and then reacting to what they've created rather than to the actual people who are in front of them. Which, as you know, as a scholar of policing, is exactly how the police operate through this feedback loop where they say, no, we respond to crime, but we know that police create crime, right, as a social category that they measure. So they create this feedback loop of knowledge where they justify their own existence and expansion, which is something that I learned through your work. Well, you gestured towards the importance of the the lessons of this book for organizing. And I want to move over to ask you a little bit about your organizing. But before I do that, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about how gender and sexuality are working for the Nation of Islam or working in your book, what it does to the story of the Nation of Islam to think about gender and sexuality, not in the way that I think a lot of criticism, a lot of popular and conventional criticism of the Nation of Islam works, which is just by saying, oh, they're not worth thinking about because they're patriarchal or conservative Mm. or they're very sexist or or whatnot. You have a wonderful sensitivity. You're always thinking about gender. Gender comes up all the time when you're thinking about leadership or when you're thinking about political spectacle, when you're thinking about how violence is framed and responded to. Could you just choose a few of those instances that maybe might be most interesting to listeners and talk about the way gender and sexuality worked for the nation of Islam in relation to the carceral state. The best of those sort of takes that you're talking about of acknowledging patriarchy within the nation of Islam. And I think just in writings about black nationalism more broadly Mm -hmm. are the ones that understand intersectionality and how like patriarchy is not a singular thing, right? And, And gender performance is not a singular thing, but it happens across race and class and all these different gradients. I think I took 
a lot from scholars who have done that and thinking about, you know, what Black masculinity means within the context of the UNIA and the Garvey movement or in the Nation of Islam, not simply to say, oh, this is patriarchy and separate gender spheres, and we should disregard it for that reason. And I think to add to that, what I wanted to capture was the way that the state is also obviously a deeply gendered heteronationalist project. So the way that the state is invested in gender and sexuality deeply, so that even in the way that the state frames activism, like to use one example from the book, the reason that the Nation of Islam has a presence in prisons dates back to World War II. Right. The reason that 200 plus Muslim men are incarcerated is because of their resistance to the draft. Mm-hmm. And the draft is a patriarchal project that sees men as sort of fit for service and women in this like service supportive role. So it, just thinking through the way that the, the state already sort of is constructing gender in a way that, that scripts different roles for people. And then how we can find examples of women in the nation of Islam participating in activism, even within the the sort of strict separate spheres of of the nation of Islam. So one example that I talk about is in the trial in Los Angeles, where Black Muslim women have asked for separate seating, or sort of just not asked for really, they just took separate seating in the courtroom. And then there's this whole debate that happens about separation versus segregation, which I think is a, a great example of how the nation, to that earlier point that I made about how the nation helps us think through some of the binaries that we have about the civil rights movement. So the binary that existed for a lot of people in thinking about the civil rights movement then and today is integration versus segregation. And the Nation of Islam really blows that up because they're talking about racial separation. And Malcolm has this whole great riff where he talks about, you know, separation is two equals and they're deciding to not be together versus segregation, which is sort of imposed. So in this case of this trial in Los Angeles in 1963, Black women are saying, we want separate seating from whites. And the court, especially through the support of the NAACP in Los Angeles, does what they call desegregation by saying this is not appropriate because they're seeing it through the lens of the sort of dominant trope of the moment, which is about segregation and integration. For me, it was important to see that that's one way that women in the nation of Islam are performing a sort of theatrical politics in the courtroom about separation, not just of separate gender spheres, but about racial separation. So that's just one example where I thought that that kind of just understanding the historical context and the role that the state plays in gender and sexuality, as well as the nation, that it's important to contextualize the NOI within that. I really appreciate the attention to gender, not only to women, but also to the ways that ideas about femaleness or reproduction or maternity or the patriarchal family protection and so on are used. And also masculinity, you know, which is a term of analysis for you in a very smart way. So, and and let me just say to any listener who's made it this far, the book is so beautiful. You're just going to love it. It is an academic book, but it reads so smoothly and it draws you along. It makes you want to keep turning the pages for anybody looking for a really deep dive into a very important part of all of these histories. Go read Those Who Know by Garrett Felber. We'll have links to our previous episodes with Garrett Felber on our website, kitelineradio.org. And we'll share more of this conversation on our show next week. Stay tuned. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. 
We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.